Ian, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm delighted to be here as the culmination of the Clean and Green Week. That's uh, fantastic. I didn't know it was the culminating moment, as it were. So what I'm going to do this evening is talk about innovation and the role of innovation in promoting a cleaner, greener world. Um, it's in three parts. So I'm going to just very quickly whiz through state-of-the-world type stuff as to where we are and why we're in trouble. I'm then going to talk about where innovation is coming from at the moment in terms of some of the solutions. And then we'll have a bit of a discussion about that. And then I want to end with some real politique about why the world just isn't making this all happen. Because it could actually all be happening right now. And it still isn't really happening at the speed that we need it to, which is mystifying. And so we have to unpack that uh, kind of problem, really. So that's the forum. We've been around since 96. And uh, as I often say, we are very privileged. We spend 99% of our working lives dealing with solutions, not problems. And having spent the first 20 years of my life dealing only with the problems and never being allowed to look at the solutions, this is a bit of a relief, I can tell you. OK, if I just had to show you one slide, this is the problem. Um, we are really still completely trapped by this model of progress, which is that we have more and more people every year making a bigger and bigger demand on the finite systems and resources that the Earth has to offer, as represented by the socket over on the right there. And the fact that we have more and more people every year, so 75 million more people at the end of every year than at the start of the year, and the economy keeps growing, everybody hopes it keeps growing, uh, by 3 4% per annum, and we just still haven't really given a great deal of thought to the little bit over there on the right. So, you can see I'm really going fast here today. This is the story. Everybody knows this now. Nobody is really in denial about this. We know increasingly what the extent of this footprint looks like and its impact on our lives now and potential impact on lives of generations to come. No dispute about that. So I'm not going to run you through all of this stuff. You know it's a bit of a mess out there. There is a big difference, however, between all of these things and climate change, which I'm going to come on and talk about in a moment, which is all of those things are reversible problems. If we wanted to address all of those things, we're perfectly capable of addressing those things. As we know, from our experience in the rich world, where we have largely addressed issues to do with air and water pollution, and these are stories that could be rolled else, out elsewhere. Build-up of toxics, we do sort of know how to do much of this stuff, but we don't do much. So the answer to that is, and this can be taken right back to the 1972, the first United Nations conference uh, in Stockholm on the environment and human development, where it said, obviously, we want to go on creating wealth. This is long before Brundtland but we're going to have to create that wealth within these limits, not beyond the limits. And so the language has since changed, and you can now catch these dreadful words, decarbonization, dematerialization, closed-loop systems, etc., etc. But at least we know what the story is, which is constraining the human development story within these naturally occurring limits. So why is climate change in a completely different order from all those other environmental issues. And I'm an ex-English teacher, so just to run you through what I think is a very interesting shift in the lexicon, in the language associated with climate change. So in 1992, at the time of the Framework Convention on Climate Change, the wording in the convention is all about avoiding dangerous climate change. That's still the formal UN FCCC wording, is avoiding dangerous climate change. From 92 onwards, it began to move a bit where scientists began to point out to us some of the implications around what they called non-linear change in climate systems. We then started to hear a lot more about 
runaway, not a particularly technical term, but I think you all get the sense of what it means, which is that we might suddenly find ourselves surrounded by different feedback loops in climate systems which we are no longer able to control in the way that we still think we are. And then, of course, by the time the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reported in 2007, the final bit of this linguistic evolution came into play and scientists invited us to think about the imperative of avoiding irreversible climate change. Dangerous sounds sort of manageable because you sort of think if we marshal enough of the resource that the human species has available to it, it ought to be able to avoid the dangerous stuff. Irreversible, a bit tricky, just a bit tricky. Now, technically, of course, as you all understand, nothing is really irreversible, um, even if we did our worst damage to the planet, unless it went into a kind of Venusian state of climate irreversibility, in due course, probably, different systems would pull the planet back to some kind of homeostasis. But, to all extents and purposes, irreversible for the human species, that's for sure. That's a 20-year linguistic evolution. That's really all it's taken for the scientists to remind us of this story. And in fact, it's reflected now in an equally compelling change in the way scientists talk about this. So 1992, scientists, with a certain amount of trepidation, would say that as long as we can hold concentrations at around 550 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, we probably should be all right. We'll be able to stay below this two degrees centigrade threshold. 450 then became the norm really through the first uh, decade of this century, so that by the time we got to the IPCC fourth assessment report, people were talking about 450. And now, an awful lot of scientists, and I don't mean the outer fringes, of the scientific community are talking about the need to stabilize at close to 350 parts per million. Not easy given that we're already at 387 parts per million today. So that, as you can imagine, is quite a story. So just to remind you, this is the consensus. It is still the consensus, by the way. We might want to come on to the debate about climate change, but I'm not going to go into it this evening. It was still the consensus in the Copenhagen Accord. Uh, people have passed over that, but this was the first time ever in Copenhagen that the big nations of the world, including China and India, actually formally confirmed the need to stay below that two degrees centigrade threshold. It's the first time that's actually occurred in an official bit of UN documentation. And once you've set that as your upper limit on temperature increase, you can cascade the logic of that through the levels of gases in the atmosphere, the concentrations, and then you need to work out what that means in terms of cuts. So by and large, although the language is still 50% cuts by 2050, actually we know we're really on a journey towards something closer <coughs> to 80% reduction in these greenhouse gases by 2050, which is a fairly extraordinary story. Okay, so that was a very quick canter through the state of the world. I did tell you I'd be quick about it. Um, and I could go into much more detail about it, but to be honest, I imagine like me, most of you sort of are quite dispirited by endless recitations of the fact that the earth is in trouble and we're the cause of it and nothing's really happening. So I wanted to shift the tone a little bit now this evening, um, which is to look at the glass half full story that's happening, which is quite exciting. And this is my favorite cartoon at the moment about climate change, to be honest. Um, 
this person here in the back row I see as the editor of the Daily Mail. <laughs> you know, the kind of person who really doesn't want to know anything about the good news that would come with the journey towards a low-carbon society, because that would just dispel forever his opportunity to go on talking about the hideous climate change hoax that's been perpetrated upon us. So there's a lot of theory behind this, and a lot of economists are now beginning to talk in a most exciting and interesting way about why the journey to a low-carbon economy is much more important in geopolitical terms than simply addressing the phenomenon of climate change and the build-up of greenhouse gases. So the whole idea now that we're beginning to see new mindsets, new technologies, business showing much greater awareness about the need to act differently in a troubled world. And yes, lots of greenwash out there, but please don't, don't be overwhelmed by the talk about the greenwash story. There are lots of companies that are genuinely doing this stuff differently now. And we're beginning to see new business models and so on. It's a scene of extraordinary creativity, which you hardly get to hear anything about. And it's largely because the media think that anything that a big company does must, by definition, be self-serving greenwash. And therefore, they will not really be interested in sharing it with you. So, again, I'm not going to go into any particular corporate stories here tonight, but very happy to talk about some of the stories that I think are particularly important. Um, the Walmart story in America is truly extraordinary because it is such a big company. It is such an iconic brand. It has such a bad reputation in the minds of many people in America and globally. And the work it is doing on its own green agenda is completely extraordinary. Completely extraordinary. And it is the most aggressive environmental retrofit scheme that any corporate is engaged in in the world today. It's quite difficult for NGOs to kind of say that because, you know, Walmart is the company we love to hate. And on the social side of the equation, Walmart is still pretty difficult to deal with. Pretty difficult to deal with. But the story going on about the environmental technologies and efficiency is amazing. So lots of corporate stories, which I'm not going to dwell on particularly tonight. So I went to a conference last week about innovation, and it was fun because lots of people were invited to spend a lot of time together answering this one single question. When can we expect the iPod of mobility? So we are very excited by technology. We sort of love the sense that technology liberates people in different ways, makes more of their life than would otherwise be the case. And this question was, given the need to transform, stroke, revolutionize our approach to mobility, to transportation in general, when are we going to see the same kind of step changes technologically as is already the case? Well, it's already happening, of course. You will have picked up now that there is a lot more interest in EVs and electric vehicles than has ever been the case. That little number at the top there. Can anybody tell me what that car is? It's the Tesla, which is the world's fastest electric vehicle. Jeremy Clarkson, who I'm going to come back to later, uh, <laughs> loves it, went for a test drive, and was almost persuaded that this was the face of the future. Not quite, but almost persuaded. It's about $240,000, so it's, you know, it's fine for Jeremy Clarkson. You'll probably get one um, to keep in the garage, along with all the other 22 cars that he's got, but um, it's probably out of the purchase range of most of us. So we're beginning to see an extraordinary array of new electric vehicles now coming to market 
not just in the rich world, and the Geneva Car Show earlier this year was devoted 100% to electric vehicle technologies, but in China, in India, and elsewhere. And America, that's the, Chevy, the Chevrolet Volt. So let's just take a deep breath and imagine that this isn't just about a little bit of technology picking to cope with the buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Imagine that this is actually the start of a fundamental wave in the world economy. This is an interesting analysis done by this man called Kondratiev, who pegged the history of the Industrial Revolution and different time periods in the Industrial Revolution to the emergence of certain technologies. So he would say it all started down here in terms of iron, water power, mechanization, etc., and then it takes it through a number of different phases. So here we are now very much in this fifth wave of technological development and, of course, all the wealth that flows from that, the value created that flows from that, driven by ICT technologies, essentially the whole Silicon Valley phenomenon, this amazing growth in our ability to harness these technologies. And the out-and-out -out optimists in this world of low-carbon and clean-tech growth and development would say, well, what if, without really knowing it, we are, in fact, in the foothills of the fifth, of the sixth Kondratiev wave. So right here, might we be seeing now, in this family of different approaches to wealth creation, might we be seeing not just the means by which we rescue ourselves from irreversible climate change, but the means by which we drive the global economy forward in a completely different way. So you can tell this is a slightly different pitch on this. This brings with it a certain amount of geopolitical interest and attention because it takes it out of the notion of different single technology improvements into the idea of systemic changes in the economy. This man will be familiar to you. Here he is demonstrating his bladeless fan, the latest of his new techno wheezes. Um, James Dyson is absolutely convinced now that we are on the verge of a totally different approach to technology development and innovation, and is, in his own way, totally committed to the notion of that being driven by this new ethos and the imperative of sustainability. The bladeless fan on itself isn't going to make that much difference, but it does provide the function of moving air around a room for about 20% of the energy that you would need with a conventional fan. So in and of itself, it's a small step forward and probably be quite useful. And he's very interesting to listen to on this. Here's a rather different character. <coughs> this is Craig Venter. I don't know whether he organized this photo montage himself or whether some mischievous critic decided to do it for him. But it does rather capture Craig Venter, the scientist, and Craig Venter, the businessman. And they are actually inseparable because he is an extremely successful businessman as well as being an extremely innovative and interesting scientist. And you will know that he's been in the news again recently for Cynthia, for his new synthetic organism that he's created. Um, not, by the way, playing God, because he really hasn't created life ex nihilo. All he's done is to make strands of DNA, synthesize them, bring them together, and transfer them into a hollowed-out cell of another organism. That's pretty smart, by the way. I'm not saying that isn't clever. It is very clever. 
Um, and it cost him about $45 million to do it. So that's where the businessman kicks in. And Craig Venter has never made any bones about the fact that he intends to be one of the richest people in the world because he thinks that the intellectual capabilities he brings to this are extraordinary. And he's right. What was most interesting to me when he launched Cynthia to a troubled world was the way in which he started to justify the benefits that this would bring to humankind. So amongst the list of amazing things that these new synthetic organisms are going to achieve was what he called fourth-generation biofuels. Very interesting story. So first-generation biofuels making ethanol from wheat and sugar and stuff like that. Second-generation biofuels much smarter using kind of waste products, switchgrass, whatever it might be. Third-generation biofuels kind of algae and different technologies that lots of people are working on at the moment and tremendous excitement about the potential here. And I think what Craig Venter meant by fourth generation was these will be synthetic algae because we will make them specifically to increase the yields which we'll be able to get for the same process. I don't think anyone else is talking about fourth generation biofuels. He also, of course, said we will be able to create organisms which will suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and turn it into the energy source of the future. That is a closed-loop system to die for. Because if we could do this taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and turn it into an energy source, does that sound completely wacky? Please don't dismiss this. There's a lot of money going into precisely that kind of technology innovation today. Friend or foe to a sustainable world? Tricky one to answer. You've probably got some fairly serious thoughts about this, but for me, very interesting development. So maybe we don't have to do the full sort of <coughs> Venter-type fourth-generation biofuels. I just want to take you through my, this little slide I use here to um, wind up oil companies, actually. This is my favorite wind-up with oil companies because they hate this slide. It's a very cheeky slide that's put forward by an organization called Desert Trek, which was one of the first organizations to start talking about the global potential for CSP. CSP, Concentrated Solar Power, this is a CSP plant um, outside Seville, built by a company called Abengoa, 22 megawatt plant. It looks sort of space age at one level, which it is. It takes the incoming solar energy. These heliostats then beam that energy onto the tower in the middle here, which is full of water. It heats the water to about 2,000 degrees. It makes steam which turns a turbine, which does all the conventional things that steam-driven turbines do. And Seville now is building four of these plants around Seville uh, on the basis of wanting to be completely self-sufficient in electricity for the city. So, don't, again, CSP is, al is alive and well and out there. In fact, it's a quite an old technology. Uh, it was first brought forward in the first oil shock in 1976 was when the Americans built the first... CSP plant in the desert just outside uh, in Nevada. Um, so that's the technology. There is a lot of money going into it. There will be even more money going into it. And this is the most ambitious of all of these schemes, which is basically, sorry, to build something like eight high-voltage direct current lines from CSP plants all across the top of North Africa to bring solar generated electrons to an energy-starved new supergrid in the south of Europe, which in time will connect with a new supergrid in the north of Europe, 
which will take wind-generated electrons from uh, UK, Norway, and elsewhere. The reason why this is so cheeky is because their calculation is that's the amount of desert you need to build CSP plants to provide Germany with all its electricity. This is the EU and this is the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is the answer to all our prayers. It isn't. And it certainly wouldn't make much sense building everything here and then shipping the electricity around to the rest of the world. Okay. But when you hear oil companies say, yeah, no, we're very keen on renewables. No, we really think they've got a part to play. But, and then the but comes in immediately, but we know that those renewables will not play a major part in meeting the energy needs of humankind until well into the 2030s, 2040s. And then you're hitting a really big issue, which I'll come back to, which is the issue of incumbency and what these big power brokers in the energy economy do to stop what some people call the resolarization of the economy. And fossil fuels are no more than stored solar power. We've just got to get used to the fact we're not going to be depending on stored solar power. We're going to be using the real stuff. And that's what our future depends on. We've known that for quite a lot of time. This is my favorite quote from Thomas Edison. Bit of a smart cookie. Um, founder, of course, of GE. And uh, a bright spark in many ways. And of course, you look at that phrase now and you think, yeah, okay. Well, shame we didn't listen to the man at that time. Now, please, again, don't think this is just a rich world set of technologies coming to the fore. This is my favorite little technology um, out and about in developing and emerging economies. This is called the Kiran, which in Sanskrit means the ray of light. As you can see, it's an extremely simple solar lantern. What you can't see here is the actual uh, LED, the light-emitting diode. This is a tiny little uh, PV cell. Um, you just stick it on your hut when you go off to work in the morning and the sun is up. And when you come back in the evening and the sun is going down, it provides at least three hours of very high quality light for people who are currently not connected to grids, have no access to lighting other than kerosene lamps or really quite dangerous and polluting energy sources of that kind. Retails at about $40 a pop. Available now. Economies of scale would take the cost down to probably closer to $15. We could actually meet the lighting needs of the 1.5 billion people in the world today who are not grid-connected by the end of the year, if we wanted to. Well, I'm exaggerating a bit, but in two to three years. There's no impediment. And this stuff, you talk to people who brought this technology forward, and they'll say, we're embarrassed by this. This is so out of date. This is so clunky. And we've got much more exciting stuff, which we think we can bring to this marketplace at scale very quickly. So I kind of, you know, like all of you, I read about this stuff and I think this is amazing. And then all the things going on with mobile telephony throughout Africa. I don't know if you saw Jonathan Dimbleby's program on Africa at the weekend. Um, and he featured this M-Pesa initiative, which has turned Vodafone into the biggest bank in, in Africa much bigger than most of the banks, because this is using mobile telephony to exchange, transfer money electronically from one mobile account to another mobile account. Completely secure money transfer system. Absolutely brilliant. Had a completely liberating effect on the lives of millions of people in Africa and now beginning to be taken up in India and elsewhere. So, this is my little cartoon about why we really need to get beyond this sort of thing into this kind of thing. 
Lots of people are understanding this now. <coughs> this is the Harvard Business Review, big article on sustainability and innovation in September last year. Uh, surveyed 62 of the world's biggest companies about what their R&D story was and how sustainability is driving innovation now in a lot of these companies, particularly companies like GE and others. Um, that needs to happen. 2008, total clean tech investments. So this is the whole family of technologies in energy, waste, water, smart materials, all that kind of stuff was $155 billion in 2008 slightly less in 2009 because of the economic recession. The World Bank calculates that to get to our 80% reduction in CO2 by 2050, we're going to need to see new investment coming forward at around a, late, a rate of $500 billion, not $155 billion. But not that far out of our recognition of what can be done. I mean, $500 billion sounds like a lot of money until you work out how much money it costs to bail out the banks. And then you think, $500 billion, that's peanuts. Which it is, actually, in comparison to $13 trillion, which is what it's cost us to bail out the banks. And now we're being asked to bail out planet Earth, and we're struggling to see these things as being of equivalent <coughs> value. I was in America doing the Business Environment Program at a seminar recently, and was shown a new speech by Thomas Friedman. Friedman, I don't know whether you know him, amazing American journalist, commentator, fascinating man, uh, spent most of his life totally ignoring this agenda. I mean, totally ignoring it and consigning it to the kind of hippie fringes of American uh, life. And then he wrote this book after several visits to India and China and South America called Hot, Flat and Crowded. And if you're after a sort of really interesting populist US American take on the global sustainability agenda, read Hot, Flat and Crowded. Anyway, this speech that he gave recently in um, April in, in the US was riveting. He didn't do any of the stuff about climate change that I've just talked about here. He simply said, just stop thinking in your nice hippy-dippy tree-huggy ways about Earth Day, because this in a way is blocking the opportunities to take up what I just described as the sixth Kondratiev wave. You're all, he was really talking to people like me, you're all still sunk in that nostalgic view of better relationships with the living world and so on. And he then ran through an extraordinary comparison of where the US is, is com in comparison to China on all the main classes of clean tech investments, whether you're talking about batteries, renewable energy of different kinds, hydrogen, fuel cells, etc., etc. And he said, what we've got to do is to get rid of our Earth Day nostalgia and understand that this is now the great Earth race. And essentially, he was making a completely brazen pitch to the US, saying this is all about the future of the United States in the world. And he ended his speech by saying, if you were frightened about red China, you'd better be very, very frightened about green China. And it was extraordinary to see the kind of response to that. So he didn't do any of the normal environmental stuff at all. So my contention, the glass is still half full. And if we really want to, we could be doing this at scale in a completely different way. And I'll come back and offer you my sort of thoughts as to why we're not in a moment. But I just wanted to stop there, because I've been speaking much too fast for too long. But 
I just sort of felt it might be useful now to see whether this touches your own sense of where the world is on innovation for a sustainable world. Um, do you pick up these kind of positive signals? Does China scare you or excite you? Where are you on the glass half full, glass half empty stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am beginning to learn how big a problem that is. It was interesting. I went to, again, another conference about innovation in the field of lighting, because I, I, this is a sort of not very interesting field to people for some reason. Actually, it's completely fascinating. And there was a, a very articulate representative from Philips who was talking about what Philips is doing and has been doing. And there was a, 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 a sort of entrepreneur sitting on the fringes of this conference, who eventually kind of broke and in the middle of the conference stood up and said, look, I have got to point out for the last 25 years, Philips has been buying up small companies and their intellectual property and has either been sitting on them completely in order to stop those innovations coming to market or has turned it in its own rather clumsy way into something that eventually became the Philips LED family of technologies, etc., etc. And this was a real moment of, as you can imagine, a moment of great tension because here were two completely contrasting views about the role of a large company sitting on an extraordinary bank of intellectual property in the field of lighting and other um, technologies. And the cry was, actually, Philips could have been doing infinitely more in this area than it has done, and it just has failed to do it for reasons of... Well, you have to work out in your own mind what the reasons were. Of course, the critique of Philips was they were doing this to protect market share, to protect their business model, to ensure that nobody actually came at them from another angle, etc., etc. So I think this business about IP and how to break some of the strangleholds that large incumbent companies have got on intellectual property is a massive challenge. Um, and I'm told that in the Craig Venter case, I'm no expert in this area, so please don't ask me too many deep questions about this, but although much of what he's done is, is in the public domain and is not protected via any patents, there are one or two pr processes or sequences in the process over which he has got patents and which he is controlling in order to create the opportunities for, for wealth in, at, in some later stage. So it's complicated. I mean, it's really difficult. And I listen to the debate, and I honestly can't say I've got an answer to that. Yeah, um, a couple of things, if that's OK. I mean, the first is... Do you want to just say who you are so I'm, that... I'm no. Harry Barton. I'm from the Northern Trust. Um, I've never been to China, so I don't know what China's like. But the impression I get from China, which may be totally misguided one, is that there's an awful lot of very exciting things going on in the <coughs> 
um, but at the same time you have this massive economic growth and yeah, yeah. Out a lot of damage almost appears to me that one is is reliant on the other so you feel well perhaps there needs to be this huge growth and destruction of the environment in order to foster the investment in development of green technologies so that's sort of one contradiction going on in my mind and the other um, point or question I was going to uh, put which is linked is uh, it strikes me always that the innovation tends to come from business which isn't necessarily morally driven um, and that, that it has the advantage of being much fleeter of foot and all the rest of it. But the sort of the direction of guidance tends to come from policy, which tends to be much slower, um, weighed down by process and procedure, um, subject to lobbying and all the rest of it. And it's um, uh, and I suppose my answer to you know optimism or pessimism is is a bit tied up with those two. Mm. So not to feel optimistic about half of it. <laughs> Yeah, well, China is completely confounding in terms of of the optimism pessimism scale. I find it impossible to to read in that regard, and they are doing both things flat out, and they don't see any contradiction in that at all. They feel that's that's absolutely clearly what they have to do to deal with short-term imperatives on poverty and economic development and so on, and they feel that what they're doing around the green economy um, is what they need to do to have more than, at the moment, they've got 13% of, of the total global clean tech market. America's got 20%. And China is the one country where they will have a target for the percentage of that market that they expect to have by 2030. Um, and they will drive those investments. I mean, they've said up to $400 billion going into clean tech, broadly defined, over the next 10 years, which is bigger than, than even percentage-wise, that's bigger than even South Korea or America. So it's weird. I mean, they don't see any contradiction there. They just say, that's, that's the deal. This is how you do it today. And we don't have lots of smart technologies at the moment in terms of oil and gas. We've only got our coal, so we're going to drive coal. And if necessary, we'll use the coal until such point as we can transition through to these other technologies. Um, I just, I don't think there's any way around that. I think that's just the nature of where we are in the in the pattern of economic development today, frankly. Would you rather China wasn't doing the clean tech thing? You see, it's quite interesting. You see, for me, when Thomas Friedman goes after the extraordinarily difficult political context in the US and tries to invite enthusiasm for low-carbon clean tech solutions off the back of a chauvinistic appeal to US national interests against the horrors of China taking over the world. A bit of me says, oh, for God's sake, that's really, that's dreadful. But another bit of me says, actually, that's going to work a lot better than telling them that the planet's going to end because of irreversible climate change. So a bit of me says, go for it. If you can do that, then you can get after, you know, this speech was actually covered on Fox News. So, uh, Jonathan, yes, my name's Tymon Colgrove. Uh, this is a, a, a much smaller end of things. I've been working in the printing industry for 30 years now, and I find the innovation that we're constantly on the end of is very stimulating, infuses me. It's, it's fantastic every time you purchase a, a new piece of kit. The, the, the difference, the savings, the, 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 the lack of 
chemicals that we use. Yeah. Reduced water consumption, yeah. Really good It's a very high figure. <laughs> yeah, the ICT industry gets away with murder. Really, they um, they they are able to build themselves as clean and green, with no impact on the planet at all. Actually, total carbon emissions from the ICT sector globally are the equivalent of emissions from aviation. And you wouldn't know that. You genuinely wouldn't know that. So nobody really talks about offsetting the emissions caused by the use of their computer or their iPad or whatever it might be, whereas everybody gets terribly worked up about offsetting emissions from their flights. So we're in a, a world that doesn't really understand this. I had a lovely example of that the other day um, at, uh, at a conference organized by O2, and it was very funny because somebody said, oh, well, look, we can deal with all of this. We can deal with all of this, this new phenomenon of cloud computing. It means that we can reduce our energy consumption dramatically. And, of course, someone said, well, where do you think the, cloud the energy for all this cloud computing is going to come from? Just because you can get rid of all your servers in order to outsource this new capability, IT capability, in a rather different way and breathtakingly exciting way at one level, but don't imagine it's going to come energy-free or cost-free. So uh, there's a lot of interest about how the ICT industry is going to start adapting to this. And they are on that journey now. Very interesting report called the SMART Report, which came out three years ago now, which looked at what ICT can do can, to liberate other, techno other industries through smart buildings, smart grids, smart control systems, so all the kind of stuff we're talking about now, to reduce their consumption by five times the increase in ICT-specific emissions. So they're looking at a, at a five-fold offset of their own growth in emissions in order to sort of create a business case for low-carbon IT. So I'd expect this one, this debate about this to change quite a bit, but they get away literally with murder, in my opinion, literally at the moment. David. David King. Um, I think I should start by saying, is the music meant to... <laughs> <laughs> it ain't mine. <laughs> Cheer you all up. <laughs> yes. No, no. Um, I, I fully agree with your glass is still half full. I like the analysis. Science, innovation, wealth creation driven mm. by the need to defossilize our economies. Never has there been a better opportunity, I think, going back mm. to the first of those spells since the Industrial yeah. Revolution for innovation why we're not yeah. much faster. Yeah. <laughs> so all I want to comment on at this point is the only thing you've said that I disagree with <laughs> is about this wonderful man, Craig Venter. Uh, <laughs> businessman was one part. I'm going to say salesman is that part. 
I do. Yeah. Um, scientists usually wait until they've done it, then they publish a paper, and they see if the paper gets past the referees and all that. Craig never bothers with that stuff. Craig has, has developed this idea that he has synthesized life. So you've already I I indicated that yeah. he couldn't have done it without a living cell being you. Yeah. And what he's actually synthesized is a very short, it's a brilliant piece of synthetic work, a very short segment of DNA. Yeah. It replicates within the cell. That's clever. Now, if you take it to the next one, which is, and what is the promise for something technological emerging that is going to create wealth other than the promises he makes that generates the venture capital that he uses? And I would say very close to zero in terms of that. And the reason I say that is, is simply the way living systems have evolved is painfully slow in the sense of yeah. trial and error. Millions of systems mm. died before one succeeded. Mm. His process is necessarily laborious compared with the mm. evolutionary process. So seeking for solutions that have emerged through the evolutionary process and perhaps tweaking them is very promising. Going right back to synthesized from the beginning. Right? If I was talking to his funders, I'd say, come on. Yeah. Okay, that's very, that's very interesting. But were you not struck by the fact that ExxonMobil have... Uh, it's not just venture capital he's got. I mean, ExxonMobil have given him $200 million over, over the next 10 years. So, I mean, there's... Uh, I'm just angry. <laughs> <laughs> so, I... I I, I mean, I share all your anxiety about that, but I'm sort of slightly out of my depth, but I couldn't help when I read his opening comments around Cynthia, I was sort of half amused by the way in which he felt he had to get some real sustainability wins in there in order to, I guess, make people feel more comfortable with what he was actually doing. Most so, of us in the community would, would be in the same position as myself. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm bound to be influenced by that uh, that uh, contribution on Clay on Craig Venter. So thank you very much. Okay. So any others quickly? And because I'm going, I want to move on now to to some of the why is it not happened? Please, and then we'll. Yeah. That's a much harder question at the moment. And there are, I think, slightly disappointingly, very few companies that are seriously engaged in process innovation around new business models. They're, in my opinion, very seriously engaged around stories like decarbonization, uh, a different approach to the way in which you engage with consumers, different routes to corporate responsibility. I mean, I think this is a serious change in the corporate psyche. I really do believe that. Um, if I look at 
the array of companies that are out there now, including the ones you'd quote as the big leaders, so Walmart or GE or whatever it might be, the idea that there's a different business model available at some point in the near future is simply not part of the deal. Walmart is doing what it's doing with the assumption that it will be able to drive the global fortunes of Walmart even more aggressively as a consequence of the efficiency gains that they make here. That's the truth of it. And that's why the shareholders of Walmart kind of love it. Um, GE, the idea that GE is going to do it differently. Eco-imagination is a brilliant proposition. Uh, has, it has really attracted some uh, very interesting new ways of making those technologies work, and they're punting a lot of money into the R&D. I mean, incredible amounts of money into the R&D around these things. But the idea that the GE machine, the big GE as a company, is going to change its business model, forget it. It's absolutely not. Capital markets, not a trace of a suggestion that the way in which capital is allocated is going to be changed profoundly. Hopefully, it'll be optimized so that more capital flows into sustainability-enhancing technologies and value creation rather than into the kind of earth-trashing value creation we have at the moment. But the idea that our capital markets are going to be tr totally transformed, not even being discussed. So there's very little innovation on that score, to be honest. And I think I know the reason for that, if I may. Well, I, know some of, I think I know some of the reasons for that. So, very quickly, what's the problem? Why is this stuff not really already so mainstream that we wouldn't be sitting here worrying about some of these issues? And I just want to touch on two little problems here. So, two contrasting and interesting characters. Okay, firstly, poor old Tony Haywood. Sorry, I've spelt his name's come out wrongly. Now, for me, forget Tony Haywood as a man for a moment and just think about the BP story. Because the BP story and renewable energy, and in particular solar volta uh, photovoltaics, is a really interesting and complicated story. And BP, for more than 25 years, has tried to find ways of making solar power, photovoltaics, work inside the, BE, the BP empire. And it's kind of gone up and down in interest and all the rest of it. And they created new businesses inside the company. Alternative Energy is the latest version of that. And they've grown it and they've shrunk it and they've changed it and they've developed it. And BP is now still the third largest manufacturer of photovoltaics in the world. Two biggest ones are in China. But it wasn't until China began really to put the pressure on this that BP began to respond to that. And actually, the solar business in BP is still so small as to be little more than a rounding error in the annual accounts, let's be honest. So BP will argue to the death that a more sustainable world is a world in which hydrocarbons, fossilized fuels, are still going to be the principal source of energy. And they defend that very actively. And they're the nice guys. Used to be seen as the nice guys in many instances. So that's one problem. Second problem is what Nicolas Sarkozy described as our fetishism about GDP. Um, he convened, as you know, a group of the great and the good economists, people like Amartya Sen and Joseph Stiglitz, into a special commission to advise him on how to start measuring wealth and GDP in particular differently so that we stopped doing some of the silly things with GDP. In the speech when the commission's report was released, and apparently this is one of those 
um, funny moments where you had to be there because they were all there, Sen and Stiglitz and um, Nick Stern, they were all there gathered at the launch of this and Sarkozy went completely off limits and started talking about the fetishism surrounding GDP and all these very serious economists, it's a fantastically boring report but very, very interesting but really very boring, all started looking at him to say, we didn't say anything about fetishism and that Sarkozy was off on one of his great benders but we do, we do basically think it's almost impossible to measure progress and improvements in people's lives without going back to GDP as the principal, if not exclusive, measure. So at least Sarkozy's tried to shake that about a bit. But actually, progress on that has been nearly zero over the last 25 years. And I use that date because the United Nations has had a working party on alternatives to measuring national accounts, which has been sitting for 25 years. And it's done practically nothing. That's because, of course, we really love this idea of growth in the system, and we're very wedded to it. We don't really think there's a way of dealing with poverty, for instance, without growth. We're not really sure there's a way of making sure we've got pensions in the rich world without growth. We don't really know how to do this. So we're stuck with it. And I'm just going to share with you what this means, the dilemma, so that you understand here the nature of what we're talking about. This is a very interesting piece of work done by Tim Jackson. Um, when I was at the Sustainable Development Commission, we had this strand of work called Redefining Prosperity. And Tim authored a report called Prosperity Without Growth. It's a very interesting piece of work. When it was published through the SDC, it was Prosperity Without Growth, question mark, because the Treasury insisted on putting a question mark in there. Now that Tim's published it in his own book, it's Prosperity Without Growth, without a question mark. Okay. What he's done, which is really interesting, is to show us what an 80% reduction in emissions of greenhouse gases looks like in terms of the efficiency change. So here we are at the moment, well, 2007, and very simple calculation. This is the carbon intensity of the total global economy. So you take net GDP, global GDP, and divide it by net global emissions of CO2. Okay, extremely simple calculation, not, not a fancy calculation. And the figure is 768 grams of CO2 for every dollar of economic value that's created. So you just crunch those two figures together, okay? Um, we're better in the UK, because this includes, of course, China and India and all sorts of seriously carbon-intensive economies, but we're nothing like as good as Japan. Japan at the moment is the most carbon-efficient country in the world, so it only causes to be emitted 244 grams of CO2 equivalent for every dollar of value it creates. So this is the best in the world at the moment, okay? So there's a break here. This is 2007. This is going through to 2050. And what Tim then did was to look at four different scenarios. The first was population grows to 9 billion people, and the economy keeps growing at about 2, 3, 3.5% per annum. So that's a modest projection. We are definitely going to 9 billion people. There's nothing that's going to stop us going to 9 billion people. And it's very unlikely, unless nature intervenes, that we will stop growing our economy at something like 2, 3, 3.5% per annum we'd have to go down to 36 grams for every dollar of value created. And then it gets a bit harder. Say we go to 11 billion by 2050, we'd have to get to 30. Say we went to 9 billion and we decided that it really is about time that we sorted out poverty across the face of the earth. So we began to address structural equity issues and enable the 4.5 billion people today, and presumably the 6.5 billion people by 2050 who don't have 
the kind of life chance that we have. So incomes at equitable 2007 EU levels. Okay, that's pretty optimistic. But that means a world in which uh, the, the poor, as it were, had become a thing of the past. Then we have to get down to 14 grams per dollar of value created. And if you go to 9 billion people with incomes at equitable 2007 plus 2% per annum growth on top of that, then you have to get down to 6 grams of CO2 per unit of value created. So when Tim says politicians love this 80% target because they never really have to work out what it means, and when you work out what it means in terms of decoupling growth from emissions, it is a startlingly <laughs> ambitious story. So from there to there, which is really the kind of history of the future history of humankind, means a 130-fold improvement in CO reducing CO2 intensity in the global economy. So an interesting question we had before about regulation needing to drive innovation, whether you're using price as an innovation driver or formal innovation, you can see the kind of journey that we're talking about here. And Tim then goes on to say, and that's only 2050. And if we go to 350 parts per million, not 450 parts per million, then maybe we have to start doing even dr more dramatic things. So the efficiency in the GDP story is very difficult. To compound that, I'll just whiz through these very quickly. We have the phenomenon of what Richard Easterlin, a very eminent US sociologist, called the hedonic treadmill, which was we basically grown our model of economic development on the basis of everybody wanting to be richer at the end of the year than at the start of the year, and wanting to consume more and have more at the end of every year than the start. So he called that the hedonic treadmill. And he said, basically, people who've got it want more of it, and people who've got lots of it still want more of it. And I think this does accurately kind of capture the reality of the world today. If you don't quite believe me, just contemplate for a moment the idiocy of the palm in Dubai, which for me is the sort of ultimate excrescence of this period of insane uh, capitalism that we've just lived through. Um, there was a time when people really did feel this was the height of the kind of virtuosity in the system that we would be able to create. I think probably very few people think that now. And do, by the way, enjoy the irony that right now, along this little tip up here, the currents are now beginning to erode that bit of the palm <laughs> Quite seriously, and like a Dungeness, well, I don't know if you've been to Dungeness nuclear power station, but they have permanently, they have to have these three huge bulldozers moving the, the, the stones on the beach to ensure that Dungeness remains safe. They now have permanent sand-moving equipment to offset the impact of this erosion, natural erosion. So for me, this is sort of a Ozymandias-type insanity which pretty soon will sink back into the water from which it was created. But you can see what people are talking about. So we know this. And then, of course, sadly, for the rest of the world, it is our model of progress that they want. And even if they know they're not going to get it, they still dream of it. So this hedonic treadmill effect is pretty tricky, summed up by this wonderful loony cartoon, which is these couples sitting together. Our way of life is threatened by a dark force which we must now defend our way of life. And what is the dark force? Well, it is, of course, our way of life. And there is no alien out there. There is nothing, as it were, which is we have to combat by kind of armed combat. This is, this is now the hold that this particular growthist, consumerist model of development has got over the human psyche collectively. So my last two little reasons about why we're in such trouble. 
I call this the phenomenon of denialism. Here is my um, favorite man, um, Jeremy Clarkson. Um, I have a thing about Jeremy Clarkson. I have to admit this uh, for all sorts of different reasons. Um, not least because I know, and it really hurts me to say this, that if Jeremy Clarkson became the figurehead for the excitement of an innovation-driven, low-carbon future in the UK, he would have more impact on the collective psyche of this country than any other person doing it. That really, really makes me cross. Really makes me cross. But I can't help but admit that. Um, this is from, there's an extraordinary book out, just out by Michael Spector, the um, science correspondent of the New York Times, called Denialism, How Irrational Thinking Hinders Scientific Progress, Harms the Planet, and Threatens Our Lives. And it is an absolute tour de force of why now we're living in a world where reason alone is not sufficient to change the behavior, to change public policy. And I think it's an incredibly dangerous period of time because everything I've been talking about this evening, about kind of science-based routes to innovation, could easily be offset by a profound outbreak of denialism all around the world, but particularly in the US. And then my last one is, this is really a closing window. We don't have a limitless amount of time to make this work. We have to make it at scale and at speed. This is a bit cheeky, but this was the front cover of my book, which came out in 1984. And I used the image of the closing window in 1984 and made all sorts of ridiculous statements about, we've only got 20 years to do this. And I'm thinking, OK, what would I say now? I'd probably say exactly the same. We've only got 20 years to do it. But there is something going on here. We know we have not got a limitless amount of time to harness the power of innovation to make this a solutions-driven route to a better world. And if we miss the window, then the route to a more sustainable world will not be driven by innovation. It'll be driven by a whole set of much less pleasant, exciting, upbeat, value-creating mechanisms, which will be very painful to contemplate. So this is what H.G. Wells said. Civilization's race between education and catastrophe. I've just cheekily slightly amended that. And I think this is really where we are now. So innovation is not a sort of nice thing to have now. It is the absolute imperative to avoid some of this really grisly stuff. So those impediments, those barriers, are quite problematic at exactly the age when we need science to speak most powerfully to people, we've got an unprecedented level of denialism going on in some of the world's most advanced economies. At precisely the time where we need innovators to be able to get round or through or overcome the power of incumbency, those incumbents are still incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. At the time where we need to be challenging GDP in its crudest sense, GDP is still absolutely in the ascendant. There's no real economic heterodoxy that is creeping through the system to challenge GDP. So these are massive, massive problems that we have to deal with. So the innovation, the technology side alone, it's a good start, but it sure as hell isn't going to get us to the place we need to be. So I don't know whether that ends with the glass half empty again. <laughs> Probably, Ian, but in which case, fill it up with something much more interesting in a moment. <laughs> good, thank you. <laughs>